when we study the Bible, we often see things that God forbade to the Jews as unclean. Our Old Testament readings for the last 19 weeks, 20 weeks this week, has been in Leviticus, often laying down in Jewish law what is clean versus what is unclean. Now please don't anyone ask me to clarify the laws on leprosy. I'm not sure I can go through that again. What immediately springs to mind in the Levitical laws are what the Jews were allowed to eat, the clean and unclean foods. About 30 years ago or so, there was a radiotherapist on the uh, on KFI as it was, who until then had been a largely secular Jew, but became an Orthodox Jew, and, and she loved everything about it. She loved she loved the study. She loved the community. Uh, she loved the two sets of dishes. What can I say? But one thing about it, she did not love. Giving up some of her favorite foods was extremely hard, especially if I remember correctly, shrimp. She loved shrimp. She craved shrimp. Why would God make shrimp an unclean food? It's much the same way with pork. I mean, you know, if if pigs are unclean, why did God make them out of bacon? Ultimately, she, she gave up Orthodox Judaism, and the reason was, and the reason she gave, was shrimp. It made no sense to her that God would forbid her that which she craved. Now, I think there's a a point or a moral or a, or a metaphor here someplace. Clean or unclean? I mean, a clean animal offered for sacrifice had to be washed of whatever muck it had been, been in before it was fit for the priests and for the temple. So obviously it has nothing to do with physical cleanliness. In Mark 7, we have uh, Jesus and his disciples accused of not washing before they ate. Mark 7. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Parentheses, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly holding to the traditions of the elders, and I want you to pay attention to the language here, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Uh, uh, Close parentheses here. And the scribes and the uh, Pharisees asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and 
Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? And in parenthesis it says, Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. The Pharisees were not concerned if the disciples were physically clean, but instead were they ritually clean according not to the law of God, but the traditions of the elders. The question remains, however... If the disciples were eating unwashed, as scripture relates, or only not washed in the tradition of the elders. Now, eating with unclean hands in those days, with their lack of refrigeration and hot water for food prep and cleanup, reminds me of the scene in uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. A posse has them trapped on a cliff high above a river. And Butch Cassidy urges Robert Redford as the Sundance Kid to to jump. And Redford says, I can't swim. And Butch Cassidy says, you can't swim? No, I can't swim. What do you mean you can't swim? I mean I can't swim. And Butch Cassidy says, you can't swim. The fall is going to kill you. Now, did the disciples eat with dirty hands? The food prep was probably going to kill them anyway. So, What else was considered unclean? You see, the Pharisees were not concerned if the disciples were physically cleaned. In truth, I don't know if they were. Uh, Instead, they wanted them to be ritually cleaned according not to the law of God, but to the traditions of the elders. Do you know that the water, big vats of water that Jesus turned into wine, were ritual cleaning water. They were not for drinking at the wedding because they didn't drink the water. Okay? You didn't drink water. This was ritual cleaning water that Jesus turned into wine. And the metaphor there is the better has come. The ritual cleaning is no longer necessary because the true wine has come with his miracle. They want the disciples to be ritually clean. My question is, we do not know if disciples had washed before eating. You know, with the lack of hygiene, with the lack of understanding where how things were done, I mean, even up until the Middle Ages, after you ate off a plate, they just scraped it off. 
and you ate off the same plate the next day. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? You know, whether you washed your hands or not back then, with the state of their hygiene, refrigeration, and food prep, so unclean. They were eating with unclean, ritually unclean hands. Now, mind you, remember, I asked you to pay attention to the uh, according to the traditions of the elders part. This was not God's law. Okay, you did not have to ritually clean your hands and. The thing is, I went back to look up these things, okay? This is not there. That is a tradition of the Pharisees that you had to do this, as many things are. So, what else was considered unclean? We've seen that some animals were unclean for food. So were some fruits and vegetables, okay? Has nothing to do with the animal. You could not eat the fruit from a tree, until that tree was four years old. Before then, the fruit was unclean. Why? I don't know. Ask God. Vegetables. You could not plant more than one crop in a field. Okay? Or that those vegetables were unclean. For all time. Now, in a largely agrarian society, without surveyors, I want to know where one field ended and the next one started, okay? But apparently they knew. You were allowed to grow one crop per field that you owned. Otherwise, if you didn't, those vegetables were unclean. Animals and fruits and vegetables could both be clean or unclean. People could be unclean also. Lepers, for instance. Lepers were forever unclean. They were put outside the town. They were not allowed inside the city walls. And they would beg, but they had to stay away from people. And if people came near them, they had to call out, unclean, unclean, to keep the people from coming near them. How terrible. They were not to be touched. On penalty of the touching person being declared unclean. Now, Jesus healed lepers, of course, and in his compassion, he healed them not with a word from a distance, but he healed them with a touch. He was perfectly capable of healing them any way he wanted. He could have, we're going to be seeing people who are healed from a distance. Jesus earlier had healed a centurion's daughter from a distance. The centurion said to him, I am a person under authority. And I know if you say, if I say go, they go. And if I say come, they come. And he said, you have that authority over my daughter. And Jesus said, I have never seen such faith. But Jesus healed the lepers by touching them. And he did not need to do that. And that restored their humanity that they had lost. They were no longer humans. They were not part of a community. They were outside the town. They were not allowed to worship. They could not go to a synagogue. They could not be touched by people. And Jesus restored that with a touch and welcomed them back to the community with that same touch. Women were unclean after childbirth or when they were having their time of the month. A flow of blood made you 
ceremonially unclean. Last week we talked about Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead. But on, in that exact same story we have this. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, and we saw this yesterday, Jairus, uh, last week, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And I want you to picture this. They weren't just loosely gathered. It was a great crush. Jesus was being crushed by the people around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Okay. She was unclean for 12 years. She could not go to the temple. She could not go to the synagogue. I shouldn't say synagogue because I do not know that for certain. But she could not go to the temple. She was unclean. Who had suffered much under many physicians. So it's not that she didn't want to be healed. She wanted to be healed badly and had suffered under many physicians. And had spent all that she had had. She made herself poor. They didn't have socialized medicine apparently. And was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Because everybody was touching him. You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. I almost cry at that, that she came in fear and trembling, as though she had done something wrong, because she had done nothing wrong. So as with the lepers, Jesus healed someone who otherwise may have been unclean and outside of her religion community for the rest of her life. Certain jobs could make you unclean. I looked for a list of these in Leviticus, and they're just for you to extrapolate. There are no really unclean jobs listed, but but I, I should say, there is no list. But people with certain jobs could become unclean and then become clean by abstaining from doing those jobs and going through the rituals. For instance, um, one of those jobs is dealing with dead bodies of any kind, especially human bodies. It was the worst thing. And priests could become ceremonially unclean, and it was a bad thing, from touching a dead body. People who cleaned up after animals were unclean. Okay? However, oh, just as with a dead body, 
He became clean in the evening. Cleaning up manure, became clean in the evening. Acts 16 tells us of a woman who had an unclean job. And, and we look at her as a hero of the faith. And so, Luke is here talking in the first person, as I read this passage, because he has joined the Apostle Paul now in his missionary work. Acts 16, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Okay, just, just like that. They went to find a place to pray. There were some women gathered there together. She listened to the word and she was baptized and said, if you consider me worthy, faithful to the Lord, come to my house. Lydia was a seller of purple and good. So, how was that a problem? If she made the purple dye herself and it's assumed that she did, therein lies the problem. See, there are two types of purple dye. Okay, Turkey red, as we know it today, was made from the matter root. The matter is a climbing vine. No problem with that. Trouble with the matter root, it's not a real good purple. It's more reddish, okay? And it fades, and it, uh, um, it's easy to make. It's a clean job. There's nothing with doing it. But the good dye, the good dye is called... It's called Tyrian purple. It is not only superior to turkey red, it's the only known dye whose color intensifies with age. It doesn't fade. Wearing is good for it. The older it gets, the more it's worn, the more purple it becomes. It's also made from shellfish. Okay, here is our first problem. And in this passage that we just read, it said that she was a... Lydia was a worshiper of God. It doesn't say that she was a Jew. She probably was not allowed to be a Jew because she worked with shellfish. Okay? So, she's making this Tyrian purple dye. And and just to tell you, it's not just that uh, it's made from shellfish. Okay? It's made from a shellfish gland. It smells terrible. Okay? It's like the worst smelling thing in the world. It takes the mucus glands of tens of thousands of murex snails that are, that are dried and then boiled. Tens of thousands. They're not a big snail, you know. Tens of thousands. They're a sea snail. To make, this, to make enough dye to dye a small patch of cloth. Just a small patch tens of thousands of these stinky, really smelly snails. Tyrian purple was a luxury item, one that is thought to have made Lydia wealthy and ceremonially unclean, which is why she couldn't convert to Judaism. 
manufacturers of Tyrian purple dye were mandated to be located 150 cubits, which is 225 feet, doesn't seem very far, from the very furthest outskirts of town. Okay, you couldn't be in town. You had to be 250 feet away. You were supposed to be downwind of town. Okay, uh, if you see somebody say that you're supposed to be east of town, that's because the wind blows west to east out there. So if you say east of town, there's, it means downwind. So a manufacturer of Tyrian dye had to be outside of town, downwind. There's one other job that we know of that makes one ceremonial and unclean, which finally brings us to our passage for today. I bet you wondered how I was going to preach a whole sermon on one verse. And one that we read last week, but we're going to do it here, okay? Our passage for today is Acts 9.43. Last week we saw how the Apostle Peter healed a man named Aeneas in the Mediterranean seaside town of Lydda. Then the Christians in Joppa, ten miles away from Lydda, sent for him when their beloved sister Tabitha died, and Peter came and raised her from the dead. We read the final verse of Acts 9 which is, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Just on face value, Simon the tanner would seem to be an odd choice for the Apostle Peter to stay with. First, tanners were shunned by most Jews, okay? And, uh, well, the reason is, first, they're... uh, their homes, which were filled, which were usually also their tanneries, were filled with dead animals. Okay? Just keep in mind there's no refrigeration. Okay? Dead animals stink. According to Leviticus 11, anyone who touches a dead animal is unclean until evening. This means that functionally a tanner is unclean every day. Now, technically, they could go to the temple, okay? Because in the evening, the start of the new day, the uncleanliness becomes, they're now clean in the evening. Of course, the temple doesn't meet in the evening at sundown. That's already over. So you'd have to get up in the morning and go to the early service if you want to worship God. Uh, But there's other problems involved with tanners. While they theoretically could go to temple in the morning, they were discouraged to uh, by the religious authorities. Why? That brings me to uh, what I was looking for. This is from the Jewish Virtual Library. This is a collection by Jews of their writings, various people. So according to the Mishnah, BB2 uh, verse 9, a tannery should be situated on the east side of town only, sort of like the maker of purple dye. At least 50 cubits from the outskirts. This was because tanning was primitive, malodorous process, and I should, I should let you know. Have you ever heard of brain-tanned leather? It's like the greatest, softest leather. It's an American invention. American Indians invented the brain-tanning of leather. Uh, and it's exactly what it sounds like. They use the enzymes and the juices of a deer's brain to tan a deer hide. 
uh, the American Indians would scrape the hide, then tan it with its own brains, okay? Sounds wonderful. It was worse in Israel. Their method of tanning was, remember the uh, people who collected manure, uh, dog manure, um, pigeon manure? That would be delivered to the tanners who would drop it in their pot, mix it with water, boil it, and drop the skins in. The enzymes from that tanned the hides. It apparently added to the maleficent, malevolent smell. Whatever. It, uh, between the animals and the boiling dung, as they say here, it was a primitive malodorous process. Like a privy outhouse and a bathhouse, the uh, tanner... Uh, the tannery was exempted from having a mezuzah, a religious symbol on the door. They did not have to do that. The residents of an alley or lane in a town could prevent one of their neighbors from becoming a tanner. They had a vote in the process. It was so unappealing. A synagogue building could never be sold to become a tannery. Even if they went to another building, that building could never be used as a tannery. They say, for all these reasons, the tanner's status in society was low. Like fullers and coppersmiths, and I don't know why they were, tanners are exempted from appearing at the temple on pilgrimage festivals because their unpleasant odor prevents them from going up with all the men. The Odor permeated everything and they could not get rid of it. Washing clothes didn't help. Washing themselves did not help. They were so stinky that they were not allowed by the religious authorities to go to the temple. An unnamed rabbi explains that they are exempt because their bad odor, having penetrated their flesh, cannot be removed. This is why, well, I'll point that in just in a second. It says, the world can exist neither without a perfume maker nor without a tanner. And this is from the uh, Talmud. It says that the world cannot exist neither without a perfume maker nor without a tanner. Happy is he whose craft is that of perfume maker, not tanner. And woe to him who is a tanner by trade. If you were a tanner, whether you applied your trade before marriage or took it up afterwards, if your wife demands a divorce, you have to grant it. Okay? So, I'm giving you a little background on tanners. So anyway, tanners were not barred by Judaism. As a matter of fact, many leather goods were used in the temple. They were used in religious worship. They were used in everyday worship. God is the first person to have made clothing of skin. And it's very interesting because I didn't get this when we've been going through Genesis. I did not get this from, from the books I study. But today, studying for this sermon, you know how I tell you that people weren't dumber than us 3,000 years ago? Well, we've been discussing, did God kill the animal that he made the skins out of 
for Adam and Eve. We've been talking about when did death appear and did it appear in the Garden of Eden? They were thinking about this 3,500 years ago. Jewish scribes, Jewish commentators wonder the same thing we wonder. And what they came up with, and I love this, is that the skins God used to dress Adam and Eve were the shed skin of the serpent. Okay? I love that. As it were, a snake skin, a matched set of snake skin suits. Yeah, you hadn't heard that, had you? Because I went back, and, I, and the reason I'm sharing it now instead of in three weeks when we do this uh, verse is because it's not in my commentaries. I could not find it anywhere else but from an ancient Jewish source that God used. Now, they're surmising, of course. This is not a teaching, okay? They're surmising, and that's, this gets them away from death in the Garden of Eden, that it was the shed skin of the serpent. So that will give you something to think about. So why are some animals clean and others unclean? The animals had no choice in the matter, okay? A crocodile that crawls on he didn't do anything wrong. God made him. Why is an animal clean or unclean? There was no choice. They were just were. The fruits and the vegetables. After four years, the fruit of the tree is clean. A crop grown in a field with other crops is unclean, yet grown by itself next door in the next field is clean. Why is one clean and one unclean? Gentiles were thought by the Jewish Pharisees and elders to be unclean. They would not eat in a, in a Gentile house. And we'll see this coming up in Acts. Gentiles were not unclean. God did not make them unclean. Gentiles were sinful. They were not Jews. They were not of the promise. But they were not unclean. Despite what the Jewish authorities would want you to believe. While many of their practices were sinful, though even many of the practices of the Jews themselves were sinful. I mean, we were reading today in, in Leviticus, you know, if you sacrifice your children to Moloch, you shall die. And 800 years after that was written in Leviticus, they're doing it in the temple, in Solomon's temple. In 800 BC, they're sacrificing their children. But they weren't immediately put to death, were they? Anyway, while many of their practices were sinful and the Jews were sinful, they could, the Gentiles could become righteous. Gentiles could convert to Judaism and be considered as sons of Abraham, as full-fledged Jews. Consider these people. Tamar was believed to be a Canaanite who married and was widowed by two of Judah's sons, one of the original patriarchs, Judah, and then had a son by her father-in-law. I won't go into all the sort of details, but she was a Canaanite. She was a Gentile. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. She was a Gentile. Bathsheba was a Hittite. Ruth was a Gentile. She took her mother-in-law's religion, Judaism, these are the most famous women in Judaism's history. The most famous. 
And not one of them was a born Jew. Beyond that, they're the only women, along with Mary, to be named in Jesus' genealogy. They were all grandmothers, except Mary, who was his mother. They were all grandmothers of Jesus, and not a Jew in that lot. Now, in the thousand generations before Jesus, and maybe it wasn't a thousand, I'd have to do the math, um, there were probably plenty of Jews, but the four most famous were not Jews by birth. They became Jews. The clean-unclean distinction that God set up isn't about sin. You aren't necessarily sinning if you're unclean. It's a circumstance, for the most part. The woman with the blood blood flow, she wasn't sinning. The lepers didn't sin. Uncleanliness is not about sin. It's not about worth. It's not about your intelligence. It's not about your physical cleanliness. Not any of that. It's about redemption. About needing to be made clean by God's standard. Can a vegetable make itself clean? No. Sorry. Only God can do that. Can a pig make itself clean? A bacon. Can a man make himself clean? And we know, no. A man cannot make himself clean in God's eyes. And that is, brings us again back to Peter. And that's what he is doing in Simon the Tanner's house. He is providing grace to the tanner by accepting him, staying with him, and eating at his table. Soon, Peter will be called to stay and eat with a Gentile, a hated Roman centurion. As we'll see, and as was Peter's headstrong pattern, Peter will object to God's direction when this happens. Anyway, we will see that Peter goes because God is going to make everything clean. The tanner is going to be made clean. Food, all food is going to be made clean. God says, do not call anything unclean that I have made clean. God is doing a work here on sending Peter to the Gentiles to stay in a despised tanner's house. You remember, there are a number of despised occupations that Jesus dealt with. He dealt with, gosh, Matthew was a tax collector. They were despised, and yet Jesus made them clean. Earlier in our reading today, in um, it says that Jesus here made food clean, all food clean. But this begins the outreach, where people are brought to God, made clean by God, brought into his family, adopted in. That's the point of going to Simon the Tanner's house. That's the point of Lydia becoming a Christian symbol of charity and uh, generosity. God is turning everybody that comes to him in faith into a clean vessel for the Holy Spirit. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we do thank you that we can come to you 
and that you accept us as clean, as righteous because of Jesus. Lord, we just thank you for the forgiveness that you have bestowed upon us that we could be called sons of God. Lord, we thank you and we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.